Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right. Good morning. Um, so Amy told you a little bit about me. Um, I want to share just a little bit about my family. This is us, the five of us, at um, the Escape Game in Austin which I jokingly said nearly tore our family apart. <laughs> Put yourself in a room with all the clues, and you've got to figure stuff out, and you find out a lot about yourself. But anyway, we actually did get out of there with just a few seconds left. That's my husband in the middle, and his name's Mark. Um, we've been married for almost 24 years. And then our oldest son, Mark Douglas, is on the far right, and then Samuel. And Mark Douglas is a sophomore at Texas A&M, and then Samuel with the Aggie shirt on is also at A&M. He's a freshman, and they live together, which is kind of a cool thing. Um, They made it really easy for us to be able to go visit them. And then my daughter is there between my husband and me, and her name is Elizabeth, and she's a sophomore in high school. So that's a little bit about us. Um, 20 years ago, this coming Monday actually is a, a real spiritual marker in my life. And um, it's also the day that, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> You're going to find out I'm a crier. <laughs> They're like always right there. And I know that makes some of you very uncomfortable. But honestly, those of us who cry are uncomfortable probably with how little you cry. <laughs> So we will celebrate his birthday this coming Monday, and um, we actually, this is crazy, but we moved three times while I was pregnant with him. I know. So as as Amy told you, my husband was in the Army, and so that was just part of one of the decisions we made. We're going to stay together. So we moved three times while I was pregnant with him. Um, And our final move right before he was born was to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and um, We arrived there just in time for me to find an OB and start those like final weekly appointments that you go to. Um, We were only going to be there for just a few weeks. And in order for me to be able to give birth and then have time for both of us to have the postpartum checkup afterwards before we moved again, my OB decided that we needed to um, just go ahead and induce me early before my due date. And my due date was a little bit, we were unsure about it anyway, and they thought it was going to be a big baby. I'm from a long line of big babies. And so they're like, yeah, it'll all be good. And um, anyway, I was dreading it. I absolutely positively was terrified at the thought of being induced. And part of that, I'll blame on my mom, who had three inductions and had the most horrible birth stories. <laughs> and so I thought, I don't want to go through that. So I really, I was just praying to be able to kick off his birth in a more natural way than having to be induced. But it seemed like that's what I needed to do. So I was just going to roll with it, even though I was terrified of it. And so we got to the day before the induction, and I was just if there was no labor, no contractions, no baby. And I thought all of my prayers had been in vain. Um, but I knew God could save me from this induction. Um, but at this point, I was really doubting whether or not he would. Um, so before bed that night, Mark and I prayed together. But my heart was not in it at all. 
I was just kind of lying there. He was actually kneeling beside the bed, and then he finished praying, gets in bed, goes right to sleep, and I'm just lying there awake. And, uh, and I, I really kind of just started this argument with God over um, whether or not I actually believed him, that, whether I trusted him. And, and I was saying, I do, and he was saying, no, you actually don't. And so this kind of went on for a little bit, and I finally just confessed my lack of faith and fell asleep. And at 2 a.m., this is crazy, my water breaks. <laughs> and it was like a damn big breach. I mean, it was like, shh. <laughs> I And it was truly one of the most remarkable moments in my life. I mean, I get a child, but at the same time, it was this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love for me. Um, Anyway, so you can imagine how excited we were. Actually, my husband and I get in the bathroom. We're like laughing, and my mom and dad were there, and wake them up. And four and a half hours later, I give birth, which was like 30 minutes past the time that I was supposed to show up at the hospital. So anyway, um, I had never experienced the love of God like I did on that day. That was a, a first, the, the first time I ever experienced it quite like that. Um, and it truly was a faith-building moment for me. Um, and sometimes in our walk with the Lord, you know, a, the storyline of an event has a very logical pattern. You look and say, well, it could go this way. I could have given birth to that child by being induced. And, and it would have been very different from how it was. Um, and it would still would have been okay. But yet sometimes God just intervenes in a way that marks that moment forever in your life. And it's a moment where he steps in and expresses his love in a way that is just immeasurable. And that's exactly what the story of Rahab is. Hers is a story that didn't have to happen. Um, and you probably talked about this at your table today. Israel's conquest of Jericho could have happened without Rahab. They didn't need her help. The Israelites could have marched around the city of Jericho, as we will see in two weeks, without her assistance at all. They gained no critical info that helped them with any kind of attack strategy. So why is this story in Joshua 2? Well, it's for us, right? I mean, it's, and it's such a beautiful picture of God's plan. And it's because he loved her. God loved Rahab. So as I began reading and researching Joshua 2 in order to share today, there were so many commentary titles that um, said stuff like, from harlot to heroine. And there was this, this focus on, on her faith, which is astounding, of course, and, and is encouraging to us. Um, but as I, as I prayed over the text, I began to ask, really, who does the writer of Joshua really want us to focus on? So who is the real hero of the story? Um, and it doesn't take long to realize that the real hero is not the harlot Rahab but the God who loved her and came to save her. And um, I don't usually do slides, so I don't usually speak. <laughs> I'm not people, but anyway, so I'll see if I can remember my slides. So God is the hero of every faith story. We're going to focus on what God does in this chapter of Joshua, and hopefully we will all be encouraged to love him more and to trust him more with the same faith that Rahab exhibits. So um, just to kind of break it down, this morning we're going to look at three truths um, about God. And 
um, we're, then we're going to focus on where we see Jesus in this chapter, which is really not that hard to do, is it? I'm sure you talked about that some too. So first we see that God pursues the undeserving. I keep pointing at there, Amy, and you told me, no, but it's still working, so that's good. Um, we see that God pursues the undeserving. And Rahab is a prostitute. She's a woman of the night. Men come from Jericho or from presumably outside of the city into her home to have sex with her for money. And that's, the, I mean, that's the bottom line. She is a prostitute. Um, maybe the spies chose her home because their presence there, two men coming in, would not have been so odd. Um, they wouldn't have been as conspicuous or stand out quite like they would have if they had gone somewhere else. The other people there might be a possible source of information too, so that may have been another reason why they chose that. But whatever their reason, they entered her home, they were on a spy mission, and they were obeying Joshua, who had sent them out secretly to gather info that would be helpful to the Israelites in their conquest of the land. Joshua had charged them with, he told them to go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say what we probably all are thinking, which is they were really bad at what they were doing. <laughs> because they're barely there for even 24 hours, and already people have come to the there and said, well, they've gone to the king and said, hey, there are guys here who are spying out the land. And then the king sends men straight to Rahab's house where they are and says, who they are, where they are, and what they're doing. So their whole plan is elaborated um, and, and exposed, um, and they haven't even been there very long. So that kind of sounds like mission, right? But that depends on what their real mission was. Um, they are called spies in Joshua 2, but another word is used to describe them um, in Joshua 6, verse 25 that you'll see in a few weeks. But it's, it's very interesting to me that this word is used, and the word is messenger. And so that is a Hebrew word, malach. <laughs> and I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm just taking a stab at it. And that means, actually, um, a messenger specifically of God or an ambassador of God. So I love the thought of Joshua saying, go in and spy out the land. But yet, here is God saying, go in and be my ambassadors. Um, and he sends them in as messengers of hope <clears throat> to let Rahab know that he was coming for her. We see God extending mercy to Rahab, a Gentile harlot, pursuing her, even though she is in a state of depravity and sin. She is deserving of the coming judgment on Jericho, yet God intervenes on her behalf. This is a beautiful picture, of course, of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. <coughs> Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, in other words, we're that powerless, helpless, weak, impotent. Do you get the picture? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are the undeserving, just like Rahab. And God has pursued us in spite of our sin, in spite of our depravity, because of his great love for us. As believers, we are also to be like these spies. We are to be messengers, 
messengers of the gospel, ambassadors of hope, ambassadors of God. We're to go into the places where God leads us. So where is that? So I want you to think about it for just a moment. <clears throat> I mean, we live in a Jericho, right? I mean, our, that's the world that we live in. But more specifically, where is your Jericho? Where does God lead you? Where is he taking you to be a messenger of hope? So on our tables, we have envelopes where we can give to prison ministries. So maybe the Jericho that you've been called to go to is a prison. <clears throat> maybe it's to a neighbor's home. Maybe it's to the school where your kids are. Maybe it's to a place of business where, where you work or your spouse works. Um, it could be the grocery store. It could be the foster care system. It could be another country. We've been entrusted. It could be your own home. That could be your Jericho. But we've been entrusted with a message of hope that those around us are needing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to carry that message wherever we go. So let me ask you to think for a moment. And I know the answer to this <laughs> because I think we all have a Rahab in our life. Um, not someone who's a prostitute necessarily, but, but someone who is um, someone who comes to your mind who is outwardly so far from God. Somebody who seems so completely disinterested in spiritual matters. Someone who seems so far beyond the reach of God that you look at their outward person and you say, I'm kind of tired of praying for you. I'm kind of done. I don't, I, all of these years I've been praying for you. Is there somebody that you have decided that this is just how they're going to be? Let the story of Rahab encourage you today. Who would have ever guessed that God had already been moving and working in her heart? Outwardly, her actions had not changed. She was still running a house of prostitution, right? She was still living within the walls of the sinful city of Jericho. But when the messenger showed up, she was ready to respond. So you cannot judge from the outside what God is doing inside of someone. So I just want to encourage you to be a faithful messenger. So why was Rahab ready for the messenger's visit? God had already revealed himself to Rahab before the messengers even arrived. God revealing himself to mankind is something that we see all throughout Scripture from the beginning of time. God reveals himself through creation, which clearly, clearly gives a constant and consistent testimony of who he is. Oh, hold on. So this is Psalm 19, 1 through 4. I want to look at this because this tells us um, how God gives a testimony of who he is without him ever speaking a word. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voices is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So this means that from east to west, north to south, every tongue, every language, every human who has ever lived and ever will live has heard the testimony 
of who God is because the very heavens that he created speak of his power and his majesty and his glory. God revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the garden as he walked with them, to Noah as he commanded him to build an ark in the face of the coming flood of judgment. Revelations of God were not new to the people of Israel because the faith of the people of Israel is based upon divine revelations of God in their history, which they experienced either as an expression of his helping care to them or um, as his, uh, his punitive judgments on, sometimes on them, sometimes on other people. God revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses in a burning bush, to the Israelites at the Red Sea, in the manna that he provided, in the pillar of cloud and fire. And we could go on and on and on talking about the revelations of God. Um, So how did he reveal himself to Rahab and to all of Jericho? In verse 10, we read where Rahab said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And that was something that had happened 40 years before and people in Jericho were still talking about it. She says that they had heard what he did to the two kings of the Amorites. And Rahab proclaims that everyone knew, and they were afraid, everyone knew, not just her. The testimony of who God was and how powerful he was had traveled to all of them, not just to Rahab. No one had an excuse. So what about us? I want us to think about that. Does God still reveal himself to us? So I hope we can all answer with a resounding yes. But I know that probably there are some of us who may be questioning God, who may be wondering in, because you're in a difficult time, a struggle, something going on that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting to hear God's answer and waiting for him to show himself to you. Maybe you're experiencing something so painful and so difficult that the deepest longing of your heart is just for God to show up and intervene. Well, the eternal God did not just reveal himself to the patriarchs or to the righteous or to the lady sitting across from you, the one to your left or your right, um, or just to your husband, your neighbor, your friend. He wants to reveal himself to you. You're here, we're all here, committed to studying God's word, right? At least for this semester, hopefully for longer. I love that Amy has emphasized again and again and again that our number one priority is our own time in the word. And that our second priority is this time when we sit around the table and share with one another what God is teaching us and how we're growing. Um, And then the third priority would be what happens up here where you hear something that God has revealed to someone else. Sometimes I think we depend so much on this and we forget that our own time in the word is where God reveals himself to us in a very, very personal way. Um, So God's primary means of revealing himself to you today is through his written word as his spirit works inside of you. So I, I just wanna encourage you to commit yourself to the study of his word, but not as a means to an end, not so you can answer the questions in the book, because I know that we all can do that sometimes. Let's just get the questions answered, but um, rather let your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh, be our chief objective. Recently, um, how many of you have seen the devotional by Paul Tripp, New Morning Mercies? Do any of you have that? one of those, actually, I had a friend say, I actually don't like it because every day just tells me how much I, how sorry I am, <laughs> how, sin, how sinful I am, but that's us, right? 
Um, but anyway, Paul Tripp, he has a great way of writing. So he's, I, I was reading something, um, August 27th actually is when it was, and I thought it was worth sharing here. Um, so he says, I'm just going to read exactly what he wrote. The Bible was written to pull back the curtains and to reveal to us the one who sits at the center of all things. The Bible doesn't just reveal his position, his power, and his plan. The Bible reveals to us his character as well. The Bible tells us that God is the creator, controller, and king over all things. It tells us that God is boundless in authority, in wisdom, and in power. However, the Bible also tells us that this high and mighty one is slow to anger. He is plenteous in love. He is merciful, tender, kind, and forgiving. It tells us that he is the long-suffering giver of amazing grace. But as the character of God is revealed to us through his word, I'm sure we've all experienced this, it also exposes who we are. It reveals our true identity. So not to pick on this kind of thing, but in this age of like, have you heard of the, it, I, I never even know how to say it, Enneagram, the test where you get a number, what number are you? Um, and then love language tests and temperament studies and all of these things that tell, tell us who we are um, just to kind of try to figure ourselves out. And I, I really don't mean to pick on those because they can be helpful in relating to other people. Um, but, but where we really need to spend our time is in God's word, allowing the revelation of who he is to define for us who we are. So Paul Tripp also says in that same, on that same day, August 27th, God's word tells you that not only are you the creation of this awesome God, but that because of sin, you are a fallen creation. You were created by God to be dependent on him, but sin makes you rebellious. Sin makes you quest for independence and self-sufficiency. Sin makes you love what is foolish while you think you're wise. Sin makes you think you're capable of what you cannot do. Sin makes you think you're righteous when you're really corrupt. Sin convinces you that you are okay when actually you're heading for disaster. The Bible lovingly confronts us with everything that we are not. It does so in order that we would run after everything that we could be. The Bible forces us to face our foolishness and failure so we would run to the one who is wisdom and righteousness and find our hope in him. And this is what we see Rahab do, right? Instead of running away or hiding from God, she runs to the one who is wisdom and righteousness. So we see that the revelation of who God is, a holy, righteous, sovereign God, does not always elicit the same response in people. Mankind responds differently to the revelations of God. As we glance back at Old Testament scripture, we see so many different responses to people uh, that people have when they come in contact with God, when he reveals himself to them. So in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve, after disobeying God, God calls out to them and, he's, and they're afraid. Um, and Adam, God, he calls out to Adam and, and Adam answers God saying, I heard you, but I was afraid, so I hid from you. And then we see a different reaction um, in Jacob when he meets God and wrestles with him um, and he refuses to let go of God. I love that picture of him just holding on to him. 
And then in Exodus 3, we saw where Moses encounters God in a burning bush, and he's afraid, but he doesn't run from God. Instead, he stands and hides his face because of the holiness of God. Um, But then later in Exodus, we see where Pharaoh, when he sees the revelations of God through the plagues, he hardens his heart toward God. Um, Earlier, I talked about how God had revealed himself to Rahab and all of Jericho, how everyone had heard and everyone was afraid. But who are they really afraid of? Rahab shares with the spies in verse 9 that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And she goes on to say in verse 11, And as soon as they heard what had happened at the Red Sea and to the kings of the Amorites, their hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. So I want us to make a distinction here. Rahab says, The fear of you has fallen upon us and the inhabitants melt away before you. So I believe that she is stating what the people of Jericho thought, not about God, but about the Israelites. They thought that the Israelites were the powerful force to be reckoned with. But Rahab, on the other hand, testifies to where she believes the true power resides, and that is in God, who is leading the Israelites, not in the Israelites themselves. In verse 9, she states, I know that the Lord has given you the land, which is so interesting to me, because this is the covenant promise that God has been trying to get the Israelites to believe, that has been handed down through generations. And yet here, here is this Gentile harlot stating her belief in that covenant and her belief in the power of God to achieve that. And then she gives that beautiful, faithful testimony that we find right in the middle of the chapter where she says, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So why is it that the people of Jericho don't see and believe like Rahab? So if you will, if you have your Bible handy, turn to Romans 1. I don't think I put that on this slide. I did not. Okay. Spoiler. Um, Okay, turn to Romans 1, and let's start reading in verse 18. And I think this gives a great explanation for why the people of Jericho were not able to see their need for God. So it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. These verses describe how our own wickedness and sin can suppress the truth of who God is, causing us to be indifferent to him or to resist him. We become more afraid of man than we are of a holy God, but not Rahab. She puts her faith, her trust in the king of kings instead of her earthly king of Jericho. She realizes that her earthly king cannot save her from the coming judgment of the king of glory. And this faith she experiences is from God. It is a gracious gift that according to Ephesians 2, that was in our lesson, um, is not of Rahab's own doing. 
It is God's kindness toward her. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then finally we see that God offers salvation to Rahab. A way out of the coming judgment and a way into his family. God has pursued Rahab and sent messengers of hope to her. He has revealed himself to her through creation and the testimony of what he has done. He has given her the faith to declare that he is God of the heavens above and the earth below. And now she asks for a sure sign that her life and the lives of her family will be delivered from death. And that sign is a scarlet cord. Now, I'm going to give credit to to Sharon Morris for sharing this with me, but um, a few weeks ago, she said, Shelly, I found something so amazing. I want you to see it, and if... don't feel like you have to include it, but I, I loved it. I think this is so amazing. So I want to share it with you. I'm just going to basically read to you um, from an article that she shared with me. So first of all, the Hebrew word <clears throat> that she used there in Joshua 2 for scarlet is the word shenay, meaning, I don't, I'm probably not saying that right, but it means it's the color that is derived from the dried body of um, this insect, the coccus illicis or the crimson worm. So the actual, they would grind it up and then they would use the body of this worm, the dried body, to make the dye that then would have been used to color this cord that Rahab was told to hang out. Um, So the this scarlet worm um, is what I want us to look at. So what does a worm have to do with salvation and with Jesus? So if we look at Psalm 22, if you'll turn to that really quick, this is actually a messianic psalm, which means that it points, it was written many years before Jesus, but it points to him. And um, it's echoed in the gospels of Matthew and Mark where Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so that, that's verse one of Psalm 22. And then in verse six, we read, where this psalm says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. So do you hear Christ in that? Um, So what does Jesus mean by saying, I am a worm? Usually in the Bible, the Hebrew word for a worm is um, rima, which means like a maggot. But the Hebrew word that Jesus uses here in Psalm 22 is actually um, the word toleoth, which means crimson worm or scarlet worm. So this is so amazing to me. This is the same, this is the same word. Um, this is the same worm that is being referenced in Joshua 2. The coccus illicis, a worm that looks like a grub more than it does a worm. So let me tell you some things about this crimson worm, and I think that you are really going to be amazed at the shadows of Christ that you see in this. Um, So let me show you a picture of it. Looks gross, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, So so when this crimson worm is about to have babies, which she does only once in her life, um, she finds the trunk of a tree and attaches herself to it to the wood and makes like this hard crimson shell 
over herself. And I think that's probably what we're seeing there. And for a long time, people thought that was just part of the tree, but actually, because she's so attached to it, but that actually is the worm. Um, She is so strongly and permanently stuck to the wood that the shell cannot be removed without tearing her body completely apart and actually killing her. But so she lays her eggs under her body and under that protective shell between the tree and then her her shell. So when the baby worms hatch, that's larvae, I guess, (laughs) they stay under that shell. And not only does the mother's body protect her babies, she actually provides them with food. The babies feed on the living body of the mother. After a few days, when the young worms grow to the point that they're able to take care of themselves, the mother dies. As she dies, she oozes this crimson or scarlet dye, which not only stains the wood, but also stains her children. So they are colored scarlet for the rest of their lives. After three days, this is so amazing. After three days, the dead mother, um, her body loses its crimson color and turns white and then falls like snow. So just like the crimson worm, Jesus sacrificed or gave up his life on a tree so that his children might be washed with his crimson blood and their sins cleaned white as snow. He died for us so that we might live through him. God is the real hero of the story of Rahab, and he is the true hero of your faith story because he pursues us, he reveals himself to us, he gives us the faith to trust in him, and he offers us a way of salvation through the scarlet blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, I do thank you so much for your beautiful word that you use to just show us who you are, to show us who we are, to show our need for you, our great need for you, God. And um, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, that you gave to us so that we could be saved. Thank you, Lord, for how you love us, how you pursue us, um, and how you lead us into the places that you would have us go. I pray for all of these women, Lord. I pray for their time in your word this week. Um, God, that they would come to your word, come to you in order to commune with you and to to know you more and to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.